2: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Karen, thank you so much for joining me on today's show.
4: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here and have this conversation with you.
2: Yeah, I I think your book is uh, extremely relevant uh, to the conversations we're having on the show. Uh, And I I put out a little thing on Facebook saying, I'm going to have you on. This is the book. This is the topic. And uh, which tells you how crazy... Things can get when we start looking at these conversations. How heated they can get quickly mm-hmm. uh, is just the title sparks some conversation. So, oh, yes. uh, so the first question that came in was: uh, the Bible is very clear about the story. What's being reconsidered? But what are, what are mm. we reconsidering here? So, so what is the the general thesis of the book? Like, what mm-hmm. what what are you seeing there? Going like we need to reapproach how we look at this story.
4: Well, I agree. I think the Bible is very clear about this story, but I think the church has not always interpreted it well in terms of what the story is doing in the in the Gospel of John. So the way the church has approached the story mostly um, hypersexualizes the Samaritan woman. Um, She is condemned for adultery, for her multiple marriages, for living in sin with her boyfriend, as some modern interpreters have put it. Um, I don't think that's what the story itself is teaching. I don't think that Jesus condemns her for her marital history. I don't think that she actually bears very much responsibility for her marital history. She lives in a situation in which um, the patriarchal culture of her time did not give women many rights with respect to marriage or divorce or remarriage. Um, And I think that her story in the gospel of John is actually presenting her as a model for discipleship and for evangelism. She is a leader in her community, and she is um, the first person to testify to Jesus' identity and convince others to believe in him in John's gospel. That's a very different version of the story than the church has usually given.
2: Uh, I, I think it's safe to say that probably nobody that's listening to this episode has heard a version of this story that's empowering to her. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, this is something that was mind blowing to me when we had um, like Beth Allison Barr or Amy Bird on the show talking about their books. Is I think we tend, even even those who would still identify as Christian, they would look at the Bible as being extremely empowering to male figures, but they would look at women as being kind of like, yeah, there's some stuff in here that's for you too. You know, here's Proverbs 31, and you get that section, and then there's the Bible for for men. So what's fascinating to me is reading, especially New Testament stories or reading these, you know, these different accounts, how subversive the Bible can be to the cultural context it's written in. Because we tend to take you know, what, what the culture was at the time and say, that was like the biblical, that's how it was supposed to be. You know, we take all those traditions. So kind of break down for us, the cultural context that this story of the Samaritan woman at the well takes place in like, what's the actual history there. And, um, and then we can kind of dive into, you know, what Christ is trying to show in this story.
4: Yeah, for sure. Um So Certainly, this is a patriarchal, patrilineal society in which um, men were the legal representatives of the household and had significant control over the members of their household. So, for instance, fathers arranged the marriages for their daughters. Girls usually got married um, between the ages of 12 and 15 was an average. Some waited until their later teens, but mostly girls are getting married in their early to mid-teens to men that their fathers have chosen in order to benefit the family, right? So they're not choosing love matches <laughs> or they're not choosing, you know, I'm going to marry my daughter to her best friend because then they can have this long, lifelong commitment to each other. Um, rather, fathers are choosing households for their daughters to marry into that will bring their whole family advantages, yeah. financial, um, social advantages, political advantages. So women, um, that can sound quite harsh. And very often, this was a really harsh reality for women to live into, but it also gives them a very important role socially, because they're connecting different households together. And um, Fathers retained rights over their daughters even after they were married. So within Roman law, a father could have his daughter divorce her husband so mm. that he could marry her to someone else um, and create a better alliance for the family. Um, which again, you think that is not something that the woman herself necessarily wants to do or is um is seeking, but it is what her what is for the good of her family.
2: Right, right. Yeah, there's yeah. a yeah there's a lot of uh interesting context there and like even even that's something like reading with western eyes you know it not knowing cultural context i think affects how we interpret. because we look at when we see a woman that's been married five times you know we think in terms of now how we would view someone in that position rightly or wrongly you know you there but you know there's not as much I mean, ownership on the role of the woman in a lot of these situations. So I think that's, that's an interesting thing that you had mentioned um, previously, but let's talk a little bit, like that's the cultural background that this is the story is taking place. in. let's talk a little bit about how this story is typically presented um, because there are all variations of this story where we read in, I think like most biblical stories (laughs) where pastors have read in these different meanings to it. So how is this story most typically presented um, to congregations or, or in common Christian literature?
4: So I actually have a quote here in the book from one of my favorite interpretations of the story. This is from Got Questions Ministries, which is-
2: They always have some interesting- uh,
4: Some interesting things to say, yes. Yeah. So they say, the Samaritan woman was an outcast and looked down upon by her own people. This is evidenced by the fact that she came alone to draw water from the community well, when during biblical times, drawing water and chatting at the well was the social high point of a woman's day. However, this woman was ostracized and marked as immoral, an unmarried woman living openly with the sixth in a series of men. The story of the woman at the well teaches us that God loves us in spite of our bankrupt lives. This is, in my perspective, completely made up. So yeah. I don't want to offend anyone who really finds God Questions Ministries to be important, but here they are completely reading in a lot of information that no one in the ancient world tells us. Sure. So, sure. There's no evidence that women only went to wells once a day, and in fact, if you think about how often we go to a sink in our home, (laughs) it's very likely that women um, in a world where you didn't have running water in the house, you would need to go to the well perhaps a couple times during the day. There was no set time for women to go to the well. Um, There was no evidence at all that women used the visit to the community well as a time to socialize with each other. They probably did, but you would do that in the market as well and as you were working in your household as well. So it wasn't, um, it definitely, there's no evidence that it was the social high point of a woman's day. There's also no evidence that this woman was ostracized in her community. Hmm. And in fact, the biblical text tells us that she was respected in her community. The people listened to her. Hmm. And so I think that these assumptions that are being made about the woman, she's living without the state of marriage um, with a man without being married to him um, means that she must be a sexual sinner. And then that gets taken back to, well, there are five husbands. Maybe they divorced her because she's an adulteress. Um, Clearly sexual sin is a problem in her life. Um, And therefore, she becomes an outcast. Um, Actually, there's strong evidence that would say she's living with a man without marriage because that was an acceptable thing to do in the first century world. Um, It wasn't even a strange thing to do because there were very strict laws regulating who could marry whom. Um, But you still perhaps needed a relationship because you're a single woman living in a world centers on yeah on male experience so right. so there are good reasons for her to be in that relationship without marriage that doesn't right. turn around immorality
2: well, why have we inserted so much into this story and there's so many other stories um, what's the what's the benefit there or what's the because because that's one thing that for, for me unraveling so many of these different, stories, like there's so many layers added in by like what you just mentioned, where it's like thoughts or theories that get layered in alongside verses. going like, oh, that's what they were trying to say in the text. So why add all these extra layers or are you struggling to make sense of that yourself?
4: I think that, um, there are reasons historically for that to have happened, particularly with stories about women in the biblical narrative. Um, First and foremost, the earliest interpreters of these stories were men and men's voices in interpretation were preserved for the first 1500 years of the history of the church without women's perspectives being preserved or disseminated. So we do know that there were women in the very early church who were reading and interpreting scripture but nothing that they wrote was preserved or kept or maintained. Um, so we're getting men's perspectives on women in the biblical narrative. Um, and sometimes they have very good things to say and they hold up women as models of faith, but often their interpretations are really guided by their own concerns, and by the way that they see women in their own worlds. And um, so in the book, in the first half of the book, as I explore the history of how the Samaritan woman's story has been interpreted, I tie that with perspectives on women in the churches of the time, mm. um, showing how minimizing the Samaritan woman's role goes alongside minimizing women's voices in church communities, um, sexualizing the Samaritan woman goes along with the sexualization of women in church communities as well as a way to limit their participation and their, um, their power within the church communities.
2: Sure. Sure. Which is something we're still seeing now, um, which obviously, um, you know, your, your book specifically denotes the church to era, you know, as being a, a prompting point to this conversation, mm-hmm. Why do you think this story specifically, like when you saw Church Two unfold, you felt this desire to talk about it? You know, I heard you mention on a podcast like you felt like you wanted to, but didn't feel like you could. Like, like what does my background and education have to do with this topic? Um, you know, what about Church Two taking place made you go like, let's reexamine this story, let's look into into this, and and see how we've portrayed this for so long?
4: In part. Um, I have long been fascinated by the Samaritan woman. I think, um, she is such an important figure in John's gospel. And the more I study the gospel of John, um, the more attention I'm giving to the women characters in John's gospel. I think John is doing some really interesting things there with these women and the Samaritan woman is a fantastic example of that. Um, but clearly that is not how she has, her story has been approached either in church interpretation or academic interpretation. So although I was mostly concerned in this book with how has the church read the story, academics have been equally terrible (laughs) in demonizing and minimizing the Samaritan woman. Um, And so for me, there was just such a natural connection between looking at the stories that women were telling the way that they were being treated in the church today for bringing forward, um, their allegations and explaining their stories, telling their stories, um, and the way that the Samaritan woman has also been treated within the church. Um,
2: Yeah. yeah. The sexualization, the shame, the assumptions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, That all, that all comes together. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's such an interesting thing. And like when I, when I saw the title of your book, it was like, you know, it's, and it's, I guess that's the purpose, but it makes you reopen that story and look through it again and reading it without all of those layers of things. Cause I've heard various, you know, and we can talk about some of these in a minute. Um, I mean, I've heard the versions where a pastor will teach through it. And he gets to the point where Jesus says, you know, you have no husband, you know, you're the man you're living with is not your husband. And that's like the mic drop of the sermon is like, you know, it's, it's like uh he sees you when you're sleeping knows when you're awake kind of approach to <laughs> yes. um, this story. I've heard versions where, you know, she was barren, you know, and, and that was a reason for this. I've, you know, all these, and then I've heard the version of it. That's like the more polite version, which is like, here's Jesus talking to this woman that nobody in town would talk to, uh, you know, she's a Samaritan, which I think that is correct me if I'm wrong. That would be something radical that he was doing talking to a Samaritan woman. Um, but let's kind of break down some of those common kind of things that have been added to the story. So first of all, I mean, the five marriages that, that comes up, I've heard you say, you don't, you've, you've heard arguments for a lot of reasons. This becomes part of the story. Um, What do you think the significance of that is within this, this passage?
4: Um, I think there are two um, interpretations that I'm really drawn to. One is just, that's the point where the woman realizes who Jesus is. And Mm -hmm. this is um, a, Consistent narrative element in John's Gospel: Jesus says something that he shouldn't know about someone, and then they're like, "Oh, you're the Messiah, right?" Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah
4: exactly. Um, and in this story, Jesus says, "Oh, you've been married five times. Now you, the man you have, is not your husband." And the woman immediately says, "Oh, you're a prophet. Here's mm-hmm. the burning question of my day: <laughs> Are you the people of God, or are the Samaritans the people of God? You Jews or the Samaritans." Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I think is happening with that, with that interaction. I do also think that I think mean, five marriages and then a sixth relationship that is not a marriage, that's a hard life. And so we also see Jesus recognizing um, that whatever the situations have been for this woman, uh, she's had it bad. <laughs> she's had a struggle to get through life and to survive.
3: Right, right, and
4: so there is an element of maybe compassion there, of recognition of women's situations and the difficulty of life.
2: Right, right. In this concept of her being barren, which I'm sure again, most people listening have probably heard that and just mm-hmm. associate that somewhere in the story. Um, where does that idea kind of originate, and and why do people? Because like again, like reading through it again this morning, getting ready for this, I'm like, where is that? <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, not there.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, barrenness or the inability to bear a child was one reason for people to divorce, for men to divorce a wife in the world of the time. So I think that that's the assumption that people are making. Either she is committing adultery or she must not be able to have children. And that's why all these men keep divorcing her. Right. But perhaps as you were rereading it, you noticed it never says how these marriages ended.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah.
4: So we don't even know that she no. was divorced.
2: Well, no. And we, we imbue tone to Jesus, you know, like when you're reading the story and this is like, it's, it's amazing when you start trying to read almost like in a monotone way, like it, like if you try to read through any kind of passage or even like, even historical stories, you know, that we've read a million times, like when you read it with a different tone, like the context can change and like, Whenever you read, you know I have it in front of me, but like when you read, you know you've had five husbands. Like, if we've grown up in church, our response is usually "You've had five husbands, and the person you're living with is not your husband." You know, it's like, but we're we're assuming a tone there that's not there, and the conversation doesn't even linger on this. It's like, like when you read the story, it's "You've had five husbands," and and, and look, there is possibility because it doesn't say that there was some wrongdoing on her part in these, or there is that possibility. Like it's not saying one or the other, but the point is like, Jesus doesn't stop the narrative there and then have this lesson, which is where the story usually stopped. When I would hear this story taught, is like Mike drop Jesus knows you did something bad. And, you know, but even you, Jesus will talk to, you know, it's like, that was like kind of the look, but yeah. the story after that is like her figuring out like, Oh, you're the Messiah. Like there's this long, and again, this is something that came up in, in conversation with like a thousand bar and like several other people It's like the Bible often has women figuring something out first. <laughs> and you miss that the way this is usually portrayed, which is, which is really interesting. But even, even again, putting out a, an announcement, I was doing this episode. Um, someone said, I know she can't answer this, but was the woman at the well barren, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that that question came up like first thing. Yeah. So I thought it was funny because listening to the podcast you've been on, that was like one of the things that right. it's brought up so much, so much.
4: Yeah. And of course we can't know. However, <laughs> I would argue that the fact that she was able to remarry so many times would suggest that there was not something wrong with her. She may have had children. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, there is a tradition in the Eastern Orthodox church that she had several children and they all went out on missionary journeys together. Yeah,
2: <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, really interesting um, for uh, the other, the other thing that just came to mind as well, mm-hmm. though, um, is something with the way the story is usually presented. And I, I didn't even think about this until you were, you were sharing your answer a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm one of the things that this story is often done, it does dehumanize her quite a bit. Um, and, and I think whenever we see Samaritans, like, cause the Samaritan thing gets applied to a lot in topical sermons uh, to represent race relations in America. It can represent, you know, fill in the blank in, in there was a cultural divide between Jews and Samaritans. So like, it was very again, subversive for Jesus to be sitting and talking with someone who was considered inferior, But what I've noticed is like a lot of the sermons I've heard it ramp up the, the, you know, the dehumanizing aspect of her. So you go, she was a Samaritan. First of all, that was huge. Um, You know, Jesus is talking to a woman by himself. You know, I've heard that, that version of it, which would that be, I mean, that would be subversive at the time, correct? Or is that read into it?
4: Maybe a little bit. uh, I think. I've heard very frequently um, pastors saying, well, you know, rabbis weren't supposed to speak to women at all. And so this is just, oh, my gosh, what is Jesus doing? Uh, But that's not really accurate of the first century. Um, Women and men did talk to each other other, even if they didn't already know each other. Um, The strange thing in this story is that they're alone. And I think her surprise when Jesus talks to her at the well um, focuses very much on the Jew Samaritan issue. Mm -hmm. But I do think as well, um, the disciples at the end are surprised that Jesus is speaking with a woman. And so there is a gender element there too.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. But yeah, there's, there's all those layers. And then the other thing that kind of slips in though, is like the question of her being barren, which again is nowhere there. Like you can't, that's totally, you have to go in and like, if I'm writing a movie about this, I have to come up with elements for the story, you know, that make it more interesting. It's, you know, when you look at male perspectives within the church, like one of the worst things you can be is barren, Um, you know, and, and that it's sad for me realizing as you were giving your answer, like, when it becomes this purpose of like Jesus reaching out to the, the worst he could reach out to quote unquote, for those listening to the audio um, you know, for a woman who cannot quote unquote, fulfill her role within the church because she can't produce children. The fact that within the church, that's such a vilified thing. The fact that she would be looked down on even now, if she couldn't fulfill the role of a wife and mother, um, you can see where these illustrations and these sermons pull from that, that own yes. kind of internal prejudice and and really misogyny. I mean, it, it's what it is. It's, it's, it's saying that you are incomplete unless you can fulfill this kind of preordained role, um, which is kind of disturbing. I don't, I don't even have a question on that, but I, as, mm-hmm. as I was thinking about like, how do we get here? It mm-hmm. makes sense mm-hmm. that the pastors and, and leaders within the church would eventually get to this point this conversation.
4: Yeah. There's something wrong with her because she cannot bear a child <laughs> and I, that, that adds to her, her marginalization here. No. Yes. Um,
2: there, there's so much within this that's been added, but looking at this story for what it is um, like, uh, and, and again, I'm sure your book's going to dive deep into uh, so much. We can take from the story. Um, but when you once so when you have someone reading, John chapter four, and everybody should pause this episode for context, reread John chapter four. Um, What do you want people to see? Stripping away cultural context, stripping away Americanized Christianity, Americanized cultural readings on this story. What do you want people to see when they read through this passage?
4: Number one, this is the longest conversation in the Gospel of John, and it's between Jesus and a woman.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that and is a brand incredible. new character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: um, it's John's Gospel often starts a conversation between Jesus and someone else, like Nicodemus, in chapter three. But then somewhere along the way, just a few sentences in it turns into a sermon from Jesus and the other character just kind of disappears. And we don't hear from them again, yeah. but this woman holds her own in the conversation all the way through. Mm. Um, initially she's only responding to Jesus questions, but about halfway through, she starts asking him questions um, and turning the, the focus of the conversation onto what she's most interested in. And they have a really deep theological conversation here. And, um, The woman has often been represented as ignorant or unable to understand Jesus because she doesn't get his metaphor right away of the living water. Um, But that also is part of John's gospel. No one understands what Jesus is saying right away. So this woman is part of a good company in that respect. Um, And she does get it eventually. And she comes to this realization of Jesus and gives uh, one of the most incredible proclamations of faith that we get so far in the gospel of John, Um, particularly if you think, I think one thing that I um, am more and more convinced by is that Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are opposite characters in John's gospel. Nicodemus is a named Jewish leader, an educated man um, who does not come out of his first conversation with Jesus with faith. Mm -hmm the Samaritan woman is nameless. She's a Samaritan. She is presumably not as well-educated as Nicodemus, but at the end of her conversation with Jesus, she goes out and testifies about him to her neighbors and mm-hmm. they believe her. Wow. Um,
2: yeah. Uh, I didn't even think about it like juxtaposed with John three, um, because you have, you c- kind of have like inverse conversation. Like you've yes. got, you've got him talking to Nicodemus, which, you know, which really is, it's one of the funniest stories in the Bible is um him talking to a religious leader and trying to explain being born again. And you have this adult man teacher going, I can't I can't be born from my mom yes. again, you know, which like again when you're reading out of the King James Bible, you know, it just you just read through that and brush by and you're like, This is like a ridiculous. Conversation like it's one of the most <laughs> weird podcast philosophy discussions ever. Like you could hear this on like Jesus sitting on one side of the table at a microphone trying to explain something, and this Joe Rogan esque discussion yeah. was like totally missing the missing the point. But then in chapter four, you have this woman who she's clearly educated, like she's familiar with the verbiage of who the Messiah would be, but she isn't. She doesn't have all these accolades of what Nicodemus would have and for her to go instantly and have this kind of like, I mean, almost blue collar understanding of it, but also a deeper understanding than the leader is something that's really fascinating. Um, and again, it's something where like reading in context without these divisions of chapters makes it a really interesting kind of narrative. And it's something that's for me, like it's, it's where I, um, you know, cause there's a lot of the Christian faith for me that has become very repulsive. you know, like when we look and a lot of it's from what we've talked about, um, you know, it's, I struggle with how people come away with these very backwards teachings, you know, and how they come away with these very backwards thoughts. But I struggle with knowing how to, um, how to deal with Jesus because they're saying there's things that, um, you know there's people going like yeah you should struggle with that you know but there is things that where there's no way to make sense of of a lot of what Jesus said like there's no way to um the level at which he was communicating like even now is so superior to so many like it's it's just it's it's mesmerizing like any time that Jesus is talking in scripture to me is extremely compelling because it 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 works at a level where it's profound enough that it is accessible to the most blue collar, like uneducated person, but it also is so elaborate and so beautiful that people who have studied for, and I think it's the reason people keep going back to the Bible. You can study your whole life and find something new. You can put John three and four together in a, in a conversation and it's fast, like it changes the whole flow of the passage. Um, and so it's just, a, it's really interesting. And I'm glad you brought those two together. Cause I, again, I've read this story and I've read, obviously John three, I think everyone's probably read a thousand yes. times. I've never thought about those two conversations happening so close to each other. That's really yeah. interesting.
4: Yeah. And um, I mean, John's gospel is just so carefully put together. It's really the most literary of the gospels, mm-hmm. arguably. And it, that is not a mistake to have these two conversations that are opposites in so many ways right next to each other. Wow. Um, and I do think Nicodemus through the gospel changes his mind a few times. He His character is developed. Uh, but the Samaritan woman is just so clearly the model for disciples to
2: follow oh yeah it's wild well I, I gotta ask someone else brought up the question and and this comes up a lot I, I I you know I your book has not come out yet as of when this is recorded I have to imagine anytime you re-examine anything uh, there's people that you know bring out the pitchforks you know right. and <laughs> and uh, and go you know don't argue with scripture what's there is clear we have talked about some of the things we already assume are there um, someone asked you know how do you deal with people in conversation who would say you're you're attacking scripture by bringing in cultural context to the conversation um because there are very uh, especially in fundamentalist circles there's this literalism that hangs over everything um and there's this traditionalism too that's kind of mingled in with that so you've got like this very literal version of the reading, but also that reading is influenced by the culture like we've talked about. So how, how do you engage with those people and how do you make them see this kind of new approach without making them feel like you're attacking what, you know, the most basic foundational things to their faith?
4: Yeah, no, that's a really important question. I think, um, I think the place to start is simply to realize, um, bring people back to the text like we've done here and say, okay, what does it actually say? And what assumptions are we making? And can we separate those two things out? Um, And then the next step of that is to say, right, this story, these texts, they were written for people who lived in the first century who had particular assumptions about the world, just like we make particular assumptions as we're reading the text. Um, so we need to understand as best as we can what those earliest audiences, what the author and the earliest audiences would have assumed in this story so that we can make the right assumptions <laughs> about the text, or at least better assumptions about the text. it's can never know everything and be right. But yeah, Yeah. um, interpretation is, um, it's such a, I think it can be a really unsettling thing to realize that these texts were not written for the church today. They were written for the church through time, but they were particularly written with a first century audience in mind. And they're not explaining everything to us because of that, because they assume that we, we understand how the world works, what marriage looks like, what household life would look like, um, for men and for women, um, but for us today, two thousand years later, we really have to do a lot of hard work to understand what did it mean to live in a village.
2: <laughs>
4: what nope. what would it's your not neighborhood be yeah. with others? Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, that's 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 again so important. And it's something that I think we just do without. We just don't think about. I mean, even with the most basic. Uh, basic and, and common familiar stories. Like, you know, when we hear the, the the nativity story, you know, like, I mean, when you hear about taxes or when you hear about, you know, being, um, you know, going to this hometown, when you talk about the relationship between Joseph and Mary, like there's so many cultural things that make, I mean, some of the stories that makes them more terrifying than they are mm-hmm. in our current context. Yes. Um, but, you know, but also too, like, It helps you understand, like, where we're reading in something with, again, those Western (laughs) kind of goggles. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, So the story is written, obviously, for first century Christians. This story is written, um, you know, we can get in a lot of trouble where we take every passage and say, this is about me, you know, Mm -hmm. or this is about us right now. But there are things that we can take and principles that we can take and apply to this current situation. So we've, we've talked about how we do this wrong. We've talked about, you know, the, the intersection between church two and the motivation of this book. So what are some of the biggest things? Like, as you sat down to write this, that you went, I hope people walk away with this concept. I hope people walk away with this, uh, this idea or feel empowered in some way by this story because of fill in the blank. What, what was that for you?
4: Yeah, I think the first thing is I want to challenge the assumption that every story about a woman in the Bible is about sex. <laughs> That's just not true. That's a good
2: baseline thing yes. to try to do. Yeah.
4: Let's, let's address that issue first, uh, because we do make that assumption about so many of the biblical stories about women. Um, yeah. It's about their marriage. Um, the woman must be a prostitute. Um, because she is doing whatever she's doing. Um, This woman is clearly, you know, she's in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that's all about her sexuality and her being a temptation to the men around her, whatever we're bringing into the text. Uh, I, that's not, what we should be immediate, that, excuse me, that should not be our first response when we look at a woman's story in the Bible. Mm. Sometimes it is about sexuality, about marriage, um, but let's make sure that that's what it's about before we make that assumption. Yeah. So that's the first principle that I hope people come away with. The second principle is let's pay attention to what the women are actually doing in their stories in the Bible. So The fact that the Samaritan woman has this long conversation with Jesus, preaches in her village, convinces people (laughs) to become followers of Jesus. That should be what we're talking about when we talk about the Samaritan woman. Um, And What then should we be learning um, from her story as either men or women in the church? Right. So it shouldn't be a story that's only preached on Mother's Day so that because it's all it's about a woman. So it's only relevant for women. Right. Right. Um, No, this is a story that is a model for discipleship for for all people in the church, um, Mm. no matter what gender they identify with, right? This is a story that teaches what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Mm. Um, And the fact that it's a woman who is providing that model, that shouldn't unsettle us. That should be a celebration of the way that um, Jesus, the way that the early Christian communities embraced all of their members and brought all people in.
2: Mm. Uh, I'm going to throw... Maybe the most softball, yeah. right over home plate question ever. Um, and I think we've answered it throughout uh, through conversation. But how important is it for female perspectives in presenting these stories within the church? Um, because Again, male-dominated pulpits. Even, even people. Because again, I, I'm not. I don't lean to conspiracy. You know, where there's all these men that are like, "How do we keep women captive in the church?" There's a lot of accidental. Just, I'm a guy. You know, I had a conversation with someone today from African American community talking about it. I was like, "I'm not the voice on this topic. I can maybe get right some things, mm-hmm. but what's your perspective?" So how important is it to empower women to be teaching these stories sharing these stories and bringing a female perspective into stories that have gotten familiar to us from male perspectives
4: that is so important um we all bring our own personal experiences to our interpretation of the text and that's important right because each of us has a different experience of the world different understandings we can illuminate the text in different ways um but women's voices have been missing in that work of the church. Um, so the first written biblical interpretations from women are in the 15, 1600s. <laughs> so that's and they were, you know, there were maybe one or two copies of their books that were lost in a library for hundreds of years and are only coming back into circulation today, Um, even when women started publishing more and writing more on the biblical text um, in the 19th century, they wrote for women, not for men. And so you still have this parallel track of women drawing attention to uh, what women are doing in their households, how they are operating maybe behind the scenes. They're not taking central roles necessarily. Some of them were, but Mm -hmm. mostly women were not taking central roles in politics or in community life, but they're operating behind the scenes and they're exercising their own authority and power and relationships behind the scenes um, in important ways. And women are perhaps because of their own experiences (laughs) of being marginalized, of being silenced, of having um, a struggle to find authority, they're able to notice those women better and to draw them out in the text. Um, I'd also say that, so in looking at sermons on the Samaritan woman's story, there are a lot of really great sermons on what Jesus says in Mm. this text. Um, But what if in those sermons, we could also say and think about the significance of his conversation partner and how she draws out these messages and what the relevance of that is. I think um, I'm not a man, so I can't speak for all men. (laughs) I would not want to, but I would say that um, I can imagine a male pastor reading this story is going to identify with Jesus and think about what Jesus is saying and focus on that. Um, Perhaps a woman pastor is going to identify with the Samaritan woman and draw out her element of the story more clearly. Um, And and we need that in the church to recognize the um, many women in scripture and the contributions that they're making
2: yeah yeah that diversity of of thought you know and and like you said not saving it for a women's conference because men need to hear other perspectives yes. as well yes. um well i mean like so much of what you're saying is is probably just a relief for people uh i think for women listening to the show i have to imagine um hearing a perspective on this story that uh is not just focused on the and again we don't know, you know. It's not focused on the all the things that aren't there. Right. It's focused on the things that are. I think that's that's an important thing. I, I just watched. I just watched the documentary. It sounds out of left field, but I, I promise it'll all tie together. Um, but uh, I was watching a documentary um, called uh, "Real Indians," uh, R E E L, uh, and uh, it was talking about depictions of Native Americans in movies and cinema, and. One of the things that they talked about was, uh, there was a, there was, a, they were talking about depictions of, of native Americans and they said, we're not asking to be shown as these pure, perfect people. And they said that was the swing in pendulum in Hollywood was like, they went from being the villain to becoming this pious on a hill, like never do right. anything wrong. Right. They said, we just want to be shown as real, real people. And I see when I, when I sit down and have these conversations, I'm seeing people from all sorts of marginalized people groups. And I would say women in the church would fit the category of marginalized people group. Like, let's just look at what's there. Like Mm -hmm. we're not saying remove the warts or remove the things that might be uh, bad. It's like, what is there? What are Mm -hmm. the things there? and in this story, I mean, the part where most people end this sermon is like where she goes into this long you know, this long sermon of her own explaining yes. who he is and then going, not only that, but also going and becoming an evangelist for Jesus mm-hmm. immediately after she has this encounter. And I think, I think what you're saying is so important is like, just don't read into it. Like don't read yes. into the things that we don't hear. Don't put the tone yes. in that's not there. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, I, I want to say, I mean, thank you for giving that perspective to people. Cause I think it's good to give that back uh, to people who need it. But taking, stepping outside this story, stepping outside this book, as we kind of come to a close, like obviously church two was an explosion, just like the me too was in Hollywood church two was to the church. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say to women right now who have experienced, you know, in a place that should be the safest, most uplifting, spiritually comforting place who have had that violation happen of, of not being believed of being told that you're this, or you've brought this upon yourself. Uh, What would your words of encouragement be to, to those listeners?
4: First of all, I hear you. I believe you. (laughs) Um, I recognize your experience and your story. And I am so sorry. Um, I think Yeah. I'm so sorry that a community that should be about justice has not been about justice for all people. Um, I'd also want to, I, obviously all victims and survivors are in different places and I don't want to say you must do this, (laughs) but I would encourage women, um, and men who have experienced abuse in the church, Mm -hmm. um, not to give up. Maybe one day come back and read the Bible again and see the um, many ways that the biblical text speaks justice for mm. people who are victims of abuse. Yeah. Um, the there are so many stories in the Bible that display the depths of human depravity, but even in the midst of those stories, God speaks for the oppressed and. Mm. Um, the prophets warn the powerful against um, against abusing those who are powerless. and mm. and I hope that the church in this moment will pick up that message and preach that message and be a community that really lives it
2: out, yeah, yeah. and it's it's so important, I think, for people like you said, like to be able to go into these passages by themselves and figure that because, I think so many times this conversation goes into, you know, go back to this horrible, terrible structure that you ran, the right. church you grew up in that did all these things, go back and try it again. You know, it's right. like, maybe not, but dive back into these passages that were weaponized or dive back into these stories that were weaponized. You may find another community that's healthy, but sometimes that first step is just reexamining for yourself. And, and, you know, I, I find myself there where I I find myself dipping my toe into this section, or I find myself trying to examine this. Um, you know, it's, it's important though, to be able to look at it without all of these oppressive (laughs) forces over top of you. Um, but you know, I, I I think your book's going to be an amazing resource. I've, I've gotten, I hear a lot of your conversations, your, your research that's gone to it. I'm really excited to dive into the book once it's published. Um, and, uh, Yeah. I think it's going to be really helpful to, to a lot of people. So if you're listening to this episode, I mean, definitely grab a link in the show notes. Uh, You can pre-order the book there. Um, And thank you again for, for all of your work and research. Do you have anything else you'd like to add anything uh, maybe for somebody who's on the fence and saying like, I don't know if this is for me um, or, you know, maybe I shouldn't, grab a copy or maybe I'll wait. Uh, what would be your, your kind of, your kind of call to them? Uh, especially, to, I mean, especially even to maybe pastors or or men who are listening to the show who are like, Oh, this sounds like a great women's devotional, you know, like what would you, <laughs> yeah. what would you encourage them to, to do?
4: I think, well, I hope that the book is, um, is a call to action, a call to read women's stories differently to recognize the way that we have gone astray and to repent of some of our reading habits. Um, I would, I would actually discourage anyone who wants to read it as sort of a women's devotional (laughs) book. I think (laughs) they would be very surprised and uncomfortable (laughs) reading it with that perspective. Um, but to come into it with, uh, an open understanding and an expectation of maybe learning something new about women's Mm. lives in the first century and how that might be a resource not only for this story, but for other stories in the New Testament Um, In thinking through what were women's lives actually like and what contributions were they making to the mission of Jesus and the story of the early church.
2: Got it, got it. Well, awesome. Well, if you're listening, like I said, be sure to grab a copy. Uh, it should be available in a link in the show notes. You can check it out. Uh, it's it's going to be well worth your time. And uh, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I know you're probably uh, exhausted because you just wrote a whole book. Yes. Um, and so uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to share about it and uh, for all the hours and hours of research and all the sermons you probably endured uh, listening (laughs) to preparing for this book.
4: Yeah. Well, I am excited that it is out and coming out in the world soon. um, And I'm really grateful for this chance to talk about it with you. So thank you.
3: Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.